Well, hello, friends, and welcome again to what we're calling our, our uh, Discovery Podcast. This is a, sort of a reproduction of our uh, Sunday morning teachings, but since we are not gathering on Sunday mornings in our normal way, we're taking the opportunity to go a little bit farther, maybe a little bit um, more in-depth in some areas with our Sunday morning teaching in this podcast format. So thanks for joining us and for continuing to tune in. It means a lot to me uh, as a lead pastor. It means a lot to our other teachers and everyone on our teaching team as well that you would join in with us. Now today we begin uh, a new journey, really an extension of an old journey. We've been working our way through the book of 1 Samuel for a while, but there's a big turn in the story uh, today. And, and from here on out, we're going to be really focused on the life of David. And we'll, of course, say a lot more about this in just a moment. But this is the new part of the conversation. We're calling it David in real life. I'll say more about that in just a second. But first, you know, I had kind of a whole intro prepped for this. And then this past week, we have found out about the killing, the horrific uh, senseless killing of George Floyd. And we're seeing a response to this that is um, uh, important and needed and um, maybe to some of us surprising and shocking. But nonetheless, uh, this moment has clearly touched a nerve, not just in the African-American community, the black community here in America, but really with everyone. And this is an important moment for the church, but it's also, I think, an extremely important moment for me and my white brothers and sisters to really lean in and press into this conversation. So I wanted to begin this time by saying a couple of things, and this is going to sit at a very high 30,000-foot level Um and I'm going to say more in a separate recording about our response to George Floyd, Black Lives Matter, all this kind of stuff. Um, so you can stay tuned for that. But here's what I wanted to say this morning. At Discovery, we have spent a lot of time in the last two years talking about the kingdom of right relationships, that what Jesus does in his life and teaching is inaugurate the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven, right, is now among us. And one of the best descriptions of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is this phrase, right relationships, that Jesus comes to restore right relationship. Now, when we talk about the kingdom of right relationship at Discovery, this is not abstract philosophizing. This is not us trying to be theologically cute. This is the very gritty everyday work of pointing people towards what is actually real and true about the world that we inhabit, the universe that we are floating around in. So I wanted to begin today by reminding us what this kingdom of right relationships is all about. So a quick reveal. We believe that when God created the world and called it good, and he does this several times throughout the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, when God creates the world and calls it good, that goodness is referring to a web of right relationships. Right relationship between God as creator and human beings created in his image, right relationship between human beings, male and female, and the various 
expressions of humanity that would come after that and right relationship between human beings, again, as God's image bearers and the rest of the created world. Now, this web of right relationships is what the Old Testament writers call shalom. This is the Hebrew term for this goodness, shalom, the way God intended his creation to function and flourish. And when God looked at everything that he had made and he saw this state, he called it very good. Now, anything that disrupts this goodness, that violates shalom, is sin. Shalom, again, the design for the flourishing of God's good world. Therefore, sin is anything, be it individual acts or systemic structures, personal or social issues, anything that works against the kingdom of right relationships is sin. And here's the sobering truth. We are all participants in violating shalom. As you move forward in the story, Genesis chapter 3 onward, God's project is restoring his world, his good world, his good creation back to this state of shalom. Jesus' death and resurrection are, of course, the catalyzing moments in God's plan, the, the climax of God's restoration plan. And our calling as Jesus followers is to join Jesus, join God, join the Holy Spirit in this work. 2 Corinthians 5 17 through 19 says it this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ, through his son, Jesus, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. What we are seeing right now globally in our own country and in our own hearts is the deep need that we have for God's shalom to be restored. For his kingdom to come, his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And what is God's will? It is that we be reconciled to him and reconciled to each other, individuals to God, but also white and black and brown, reconciled to one another. We see broken shalom right now everywhere. In this pandemic, creation is groaning. We see broken shalom in Minneapolis, which is a symptom of the deeper problem, broken relationships between human beings. We see broken relationships that have created these systems of injustice and oppression. And we must see, we must see that all of this connects back to our broken relationship with God. Shalom is a web of right relationships. Therefore, reconciliation with God and with people cannot be separated. Jesus makes it so clear over and over again, these things are connected. So I want us to begin before we get to David and 1 Samuel and all that, we need to begin this morning in prayer, contending and lament and crying out for the restoration of shalom. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we have heavy hearts. 
we see, we feel, we sense the brokenness, the disconnection, the ways we are separated from the way you intended our world to function and flourish. God, we are cut off from shalom and we need to be restored. Thank, thanks be to God for the gift of Jesus and for the truth that we can be in right relationship with you, but also with each other. But this is not just, uh, God, this is not just wishful thinking or pie in the sky theology. This requires the hard work, the ministry of reconciliation. And so may discovery be in, in its own way, a picture of the kingdom of right relationships. May we uh, wrap our arms around and dig into the hard work of the ministry of reconciliation. God, we pray this for our community. We contend for you to move in our worlds, bringing peace, bringing shalom, bringing wholeness, healing, restoration to our worlds and to individuals who need it. God, we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Well, again, we are in a new series, which is a continuation of our current series, Journeying Through the Old Testament Book of 1 Samuel, which tells the story of a significant transition for the people of Israel. They're moving from this era of the judges, which was very loose in terms of a governmental structure, now into the era of kings, which will obviously become a much more sophisticated governmental structure. This was a chaotic time. It was marked by everyone doing what they thought was right in their own eyes. It was a time that called out for them really to be trusting even more in God, but it actually led them in a totally different direction, right, towards this desire for an earthly king. Now, we've looked at the first half of the story through the eyes of three characters. Hannah, who becomes the mother of Samuel. Samuel would be the second main character, and then Saul is the third. Here on out, we'll still see Samuel and Saul in particular, but from here on out, the action revolves around this guy named David. And so we're calling the rest of this conversation David in Real Life. And then the subtitle is Analog Faith in a Digital World. Now, David is a massive figure in Scripture. In fact, more of the Bible is either about him or written by him than anyone else. And I really believe that David is a good gift for us right now. David is a model of what Eugene Peterson calls earthy spirituality. Despite his fame, despite his prominence, he is presented to us in all of his humanness. It's important that we remember Christian spirituality does not draw us out of reality, but deeper into what is real. The Jesus way does not deny the earthy, physical, the analog. It actually draws us towards those realities. We worship a God who became incarnate, who became a human being, a God who creates and inhabits the physical world that he calls good. The glory of God is man-made fully alive, said the early church father Irenaeus. And David is an exemplary model of a human being made fully alive. And in this moment in time where we are being drawn deeper and deeper into the digital world, it is, uh, again, David is a good model, a good reminder for us that life is lived 
in reality. And we need to be uh, good at defining what is real. And in these moments where it's getting harder and harder to define what is real, uh, David is a good gift to us. We are in 1 Samuel chapter 16. So if you have a Bible, you can open there. You can follow along, of course, um, on your phone or whatever device you might have. We're going to read the first 13 verses of 1 Samuel chapter 16. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, Do you come in peace? There's that word, shalom. Samuel replied, Yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shema pass by, but Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, Send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. And Samuel went to Ramah. A significant event in most professional sports is this thing called the draft. This is where teams can select players that they want to play for their teams. And over the years, the process of drafting players has evolved significantly in, in all of the major sports. Drafting is this very inexact science. And so the more information that teams can get on players, the better. They measure all their physical attributes. They spend hours pouring over the film of these players uh, playing against competition. They put players through rigorous psychological and mental aptitude tests. And yet, even with all that information, there are still what they call busts, right? Draft busts. Players that never meet the lofty expectations of their teams. And then on the other side of this, there are players that are drafted very low or not at all who go on to become great. Never forget two teams passed on Michael Jordan. Becky Hammond went undrafted by the WNBA, but then went on to become a six-time All-Star and the first female assistant coach in the NBA. Might become the first uh, uh, head coach, female head coach in the NBA. Some guy named Tom Brady was not selected until the sixth round of the NFL draft. 198 players picked before 
the guy that many consider to be the greatest quarterback of all time. So even with all of this predictive data, teams still get the draft wrong, and there are always these surprises. In our digital world, we become defined by our data. We become defined by friends and likes and pixels and links. And the story of David is the good but also sobering news that God does not value us based on those metrics. God looks at the heart. David's story begins at an intersection with Saul and Samuel. Saul's disobedience, his half-heartedness, and his image management issues have cost him the kingship. Samuel says it this way in chapter 15. The kingdom is being torn away from you. 1 Samuel 15, 28. Saul's sad decline is a steady in the power of trajectory. Much of what he does wrong doesn't seem overly egregious, but he makes this series of poor, self-centered choices, choices that move him further and further from God's will, and it bumps Samuel out. He was disappointed way back when, when Israel wanted a king in the first place. He tried to warn them about what that was going to involve, but he still helps them pick Saul. And now Saul needs to replace, be replaced. And this is just a sad affair, and Samuel is bummed out. Now, it's interesting because God tells Samuel to stop mourning for him. Get over it, right? And certainly there is moments to grieve and to mourn. I think we're in one of those right now, and Samuel has been in that place before in the story. But there is also a time to move on and a time for the story to continue moving forward. And that's what happens here at the beginning of chapter 16. God tells Samuel to go find Jesse of Bethlehem because one of his sons is going to be the new king. Now, when we read scripture, we have a tendency to blow past names and places. We, we don't know how to pronounce the names. We don't know where these places are. We just kind of skip over that stuff. But don't miss this. Okay, who is Jesse? Jesse is the grandson of Ruth and Boaz. We, we see the genealogy there. Ruth chapter 4, the very end of the book. Jesse is the grandson of Ruth and Boaz. Now, later in the story, we learn that the Messiah, this uh, this person who was going to come and save Israel yet again would come from Bethlehem. Micah chapter 5, the first two verses say this, But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. How epic is that? What well, we see here in 1 Samuel chapter 16, this is a significant moment, not just in the story of 1 Samuel, but in the story of Scripture, the story of God's big salvation plan, this ministry of reconciliation, this plan of restoration, this is a big hinge moment in that story. This truth that the reconciler will come from Bethlehem will be one of David's descendants. God reassures Samuel of his plan, and Samuel reassures the elders, I come in peace. And then comes this very low-key selection of the next king of Israel, right? There's no big fanfare. There's no spectacle. They're just hanging out in backwoods Bethlehem, God and Samuel making this monumental choice. Samuel does this sacrifice thing. He begins to get acquainted with the family, and he starts to assess who he would take first in the draft if he were picking the next king. Eliab is the one who seems to stand out most to Samuel, but God says, 
Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. This is 1 Samuel 16, 7. One real quick side note. This, uh, the importance of height is a theme in the book of 1 Samuel. Remember, Saul is a head taller than everyone else, and again, height will come up again in the coming weeks. Now, God clearly states here he does not care about Eliab's 40-yard dash time. He doesn't care if he looks like a king. God cares about the heart. They move on to the next son and the next. They go through seven sons in total. None of them are chosen. This is great storytelling, this building of anticipation. But it also illustrates just how unlikely it was for David to be picked. Samuel didn't see it. Uh, David's dad didn't see it. His brothers didn't see it. It is a surprising choice. So the first seven get paraded through, and, and then this humorous moment. Is that all? Like, are you sure there aren't any more sons you're hiding somewhere? And Jesse says, oh, yeah, there is one more. There is the youngest, but he's with the sheep. Now, these are not insignificant details. These are rich details that tell us two important things about David and about how God works. First, David is the youngest. The oldest son was always the position of honor and prestige in a good Hebrew home. David was not plan A for Jesse. In fact, he probably wasn't even plan B or C or D. David was not plan A for Jesse. Why would he be plan A for Israel? David is the youngest, and then second, David is a shepherd. Now, a lot of scholars point to this story, and then there's the one that follows it in the second half of chapter 16, and then the David and Goliath story, which is chapter 17, as a sort of trilogy. The writer of 1 Samuel is introducing David to us in three ways, as shepherd, as an artist, and as a warrior. Three affirmations of his worthiness to be king of Israel. Now, if that's the goal, it is interesting that the author would start with shepherd. The people, after all, wanted a king for what reason? To fight wars. So wouldn't a warrior be the best way to introduce him first? Shepherds culturally did not have a lot of social capital. In fact, by the time we get to the New Testament, shepherds had become shifty and unreliable characters. But these details are connected. David's position as the youngest leaves him with the least desirable job, taking care of of the sheep. And yet at the same time, despite its maybe lowly perception in the culture, at the same time, shepherding, both literally and metaphorically, is huge in the narrative of Scripture. It's just a quick overview here. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had flocks and herds. Moses was herding sheep when God came to him in a burning bush and said, You are going to lead my people out of slavery in Egypt. God himself Uh, is referred to as a shepherd many times. Isaiah chapter 40, Jeremiah chapter 31, most prominently and importantly, I believe, in Ezekiel chapter 34, especially verses 11 through 16. David himself writes about God as shepherd. Psalm 23, maybe the most famous of all the Psalms. Shepherds are the first to get the good news about the birth of Jesus, Luke 2, 8. Jesus says God is like a shepherd who will do anything to find even one lost sheep. Luke 
chapter 15. Jesus refers to himself as the good shepherd in John chapter 10. And then in Revelation, the end of the story, we read this about Jesus. The lamb, this is Jesus, at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is Revelation 7, 17. So while shepherding may not have been a glamorous job, the metaphor was powerful in this culture. Shepherds knew their sheep. They spent so much time with them. They learned all the little intricacies of the sheep. Shepherds protected, fed, directed, corrected their sheep continuously. There was this bond, intimate bond, between shepherd and sheep. Now, sheep are notoriously not the most intelligent of animals, and they can get themselves into all sorts of trouble. So to be a shepherd was to say yes to a low-prestige career, to weeks of social isolation, to sacrifice and danger, all for these cute but dumb animals. Dallas Willard writes, To think of the Lord as shepherd is to come to the understand is to sorry to think of the lord as shepherd is to come to understand the intensely personal comforting attentive and providing nature of god's love and care for his flock of humanity the intensely personal comforting attentive providing nature of god's love it is no mistake that the author presents David as shepherd first. He has all the training to be a good king because he's been leading, serving, protecting, and sacrificing already. And so Samuel anoints David king, and God's spirit is on David from that day forward, 1 Samuel 16, 13. Now, I want to close by returning to this idea of the heart. There's a lot of good news in this statement that God looks at the heart and not on outward appearances. The heart, of course, does not refer to the little organ pumping blood through our bodies. The heart is also not a stand-in for our emotions. The heart in Hebrew thinking was the essence, the soul, the character of a person. God knows us this deeply, not in the abstract or the theoretical, In a very personal way, God knows who you are. Now, this can be a little unnerving, right, to think that God knows us that well. But it's actually great news that God knows us like this and still chooses to be with us. And this statement also exposes just how shallow and superficial we are in our judgment of people. Now, obviously, we need to make some judgments. Who are we going to let into our lives? Who's going to watch our kids? Who are we going to ask for advice? But we do not know the heart the way that God does. Be slow to judge. We do not know the heart the way that God does. David is going to go on to blow it in many ways, king, as king, as leader, as a husband, as a father. But through all of that, he keeps pursuing God wholeheartedly, and God's spirit is with him. If you think of David as the younger son in the prodigal son story, David always comes to his senses and comes back to the father. Luke 15, 17. And so David, the eighth son in his family, a lowly shepherd from the backwoods town of Bethlehem who has Ruth's 
Moabite blood running through his veins. David is the one God chooses to be the next king of Israel. Which brings us to Jesus. There are many connections between David and Jesus, and we're going to explore those in the weeks to come. But one connection we need to name today is this. David's selection as king is a picture of the gospel story. Central to the good news of Jesus is God's initiative towards us. His grace for us is what makes it possible to be in right relationship with him. While we were still sinners, God saved us. Romans 5.8 And here's the thing. God pursues us not because we look the part, not because we have great credentials or the right parents or the most money or tons of influence. It's simply because of his love. He was pleased to make us his own. 1 Samuel 12, 22. This is the upside down nature of God's kingdom. The last will be first. Lose your life to find it. Death that leads to resurrection and resurrection which overcomes the power of sin and death. The Messiah, the new and better David, was not going to lose. And he was definitely not supposed to die. This is unexpected. This is surprising. Do you see all the connections here? Saul is exactly who you think should be king. Tall, handsome, strong, but David is the surprise. And yet this is the pattern of God's saving work over and over again. Unexpected, upside down, surprising, good news. Now what does this mean for us? Well, first, we receive and rejoice in God's grace. In the good news that God looks at the heart and not at outward appearance. The the good news that if it were up to us to look good, to be good, and to prove our worthiness, we'd be in a bad spot. And so praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who in his great mercy has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 1 Peter one, three, the good news is we don't have to fix it ourselves. God has done the work for us. So we receive and rejoice in God's grace. And then second, we submit ourselves to God's heart work. God doesn't operate in the realm of the superficial or the abstract. God works in reality and he works on our hearts. And much of the time, uh, this work is in the mundane the hidden, the obscure, in the places that are far from the spotlight, God works in Bethlehem and in shepherds. Don't miss this. God works in timing that does not make sense to us. You know, when I look at the events in our world of this past week, I think, oh, come Lord Jesus, please, what are you waiting for? But God does not work in our timing. Abraham waited 25 years for this promised son. Jesus played with toys and made chairs for 30 years before he got to the real work of his ministry. David has been laboring in obscurity. And then even after the anointing that takes place in this part of the story, it's going to be many years before he's actually the king because there's more heart work to be done. And so I wonder if this is part of our moment 
leaning in to the hidden, obscure, slow work of God, submitting ourselves to God's heart work. And so my question for you, my friends, what is your Bethlehem? What is your flock? What is that hidden, obscure place where God needs to do some work on your heart? May you receive and rejoice in God's grace, and then may you submit yourself to God's heart work. I want to close with this. These are the words of Jesus. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. We can receive God's grace and submit ourselves to God's heart work because of what Jesus has done for us. Thanks be to God that we have a good shepherd. Grace and peace, my friends.